Welcome to Thought Leaders Unplugged, a podcast series that examines the most pressing issues of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in higher education. Brought to you by the University of Maryland's Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education. My name is Kaya McDermott, pronoun she, her, hers, and I serve as our podcast program manager and a staff consultant with the center. And I'll be one of your co-hosts. My name is Tamia Webster. I use she, her pronouns. I serve as a staff consultant in the center and one of your co-hosts for the podcast. And my name is Roger L. Worthington, he, him, his pronouns, and I will be your other co-host. I'm a professor at the University of Maryland and the executive director for the Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education. Let's start with a little background about the center and the podcast series, Thought Leaders Unplugged. Absolutely. We got to talk about the center and who we are. The Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education has a four-pronged mission, functioning as a national think tank, a research center, an academic institute, and a consulting organization for equity, justice, inclusion, diversity, access, and anti-racism in higher education. This podcast series was developed as part of that think tank mission of the center. It's coordinated with our Biennial Thought Leaders Summit. You might ask, what is a Thought Leaders Summit? Well, Every two years, the center holds a meeting of higher education experts to discuss some of the most challenging issues in the field. We discuss issues ranging from affirmative action to campus climate to anti-racism to difficult dialogues, teaching and learning, and more. In each episode of our podcast, we have a candid conversation with renowned thought leaders at the forefront of higher education equity and justice efforts. Our guests will share innovative strategies, personal stories, and research-driven solutions that inspire us to reimagine a more equitable future for all learners and for the faculty, staff, and administrators who serve them. Join us as we go beyond surface level discussions and engage in thought provoking conversations that challenge the status quo and promote meaningful exchange. In our first episode, we embark on a compelling journey with expert interviews and an in-depth discussion to unravel the complexities of the most recent Supreme Court decision on race conscious admissions and its implications within higher education. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay connected for upcoming episodes where we learn from thought leaders, exchange ideas, and co-create an inclusive educational landscape. Again, I'm Roger L. Worthington. I am Tamia Webster. And I'm Kaya McDermott. Join us for Thought Leaders Unplugged. So Kaya, what's on tap for today's episode? So in today's episode, we're going to jump right into the thick of current events and discuss the recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. We had the privilege of speaking with two prominent experts on the subject whose insights I think will really shape our podcast narrative. In our first interview, we sat down with Art Coleman, a distinguished civil rights attorney and managing partner at Education Council, an organization that provides policy, legal, and strategy consulting services to higher education institutions. And he's one of the foremost experts on affirmative action in higher education contexts. Mr. Coleman offers his expert perspective to delve into the specifics of the SCOTUS decision and the ruling's implications for affirmative action in higher education. In our second interview, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Julie J. Park, an associate professor at the University of Maryland, and one of the most leading experts in education policy on race-conscious admissions. We discussed the challenges, controversies, 
and potential alternatives to race-conscious admissions in light of the SCOTUS decision. And both of these interviews were actually conducted shortly before the SCOTUS decision came down, but they expertly anticipated the ruling in ways that provide important insights in, into what's next. Okay, but before we jump into the interview themselves, seems like we need to maybe clear up some misconceptions about the ruling. <laughs> Definitely. All right, Roger, tell me more. Well, first off, as soon as the ruling came out, we saw headlines across most major news outlets and all over social media saying, Supreme Court outlaws affirmative action. Affirmative action banned by Supreme Court. SCOTUS strikes down affirmative action. Right, right. But that's not exactly what happened, right? No, absolutely not. So you're saying the Supreme Court didn't outlaw affirmative action, but... You got to tell us, what do you mean by that? Well, these headlines reflect a broader misunderstanding of affirmative action, what it is, how it works, to whom it has been applied, and how the most recent decision affects affirmative action in a very specific and detrimental way, certainly limiting the use of one specific feature of affirmative action strategies in higher education, race-conscious admissions, while leaving the broader application of affirmative action strategies still available in numerous ways. Okay, so let me try to repeat back to our audience in a bit more simpler terms. Yeah, uh, sorry for professor speak. Right. So what Professor Worthington is trying to say is race-conscious admissions has been one of the most important tools of affirmative action colleges and universities have used to help increase diversity among their student bodies. But affirmative action is a broader concept in practice, and only race-conscious admissions as one part of affirmative action was the focus of the most recent SCOTUS ruling. Exactly. But wait, there's more. All right, go ahead, tell us. In a more recent uh, panel discussion, Art Coleman, separate from his interview for us, said it in this way, and I quote, I think what is ultimately being missed in some of the overblown rhetoric is the big picture perspective, notwithstanding the fact that the court ultimately eviscerated some of the precedent on which institutions have relied for 45 years, the court technically did not overrule Bakke, Gratz, Gruder, and Fisher as students for fair admissions had asked. Okay. So again, when we're talking about Bakke, Gratz, Gruder, and Fisher, he was talking about earlier court cases that upheld race-conscious admissions policies in higher education under certain conditions. And although they ruled against the specific policies at Harvard and UNC in these two cases, the underlying precedents or rule of law in those prior cases are still technically intact. That is correct. So our job if we choose to accept it. Ooh, sounds so mission impossible. Right, right. Our job in this episode is to be able to interpret what all of this means going forward for higher education institutions and their efforts to achieve racial diversity in their student bodies and to enact affirmative action more broadly without race-conscious decision-making now. Right. So using excerpts from our interviews with these two thought leaders on the subject and some of our own analysis since the decisions were made, we want to offer some insights into what institutions might do to enact affirmative efforts to create equity, justice, and inclusion, along with diversity. So where shall we begin? Let's start with a couple of segments from Art Coleman's interview in which he describes the background and history leading up to the decision. Let's listen. We're dealing with a very different court today than we were even six or seven years ago when the most recent Supreme Court decision upheld the consideration of race and admissions. Right. So 
court composition in elections has have consequences. Um, but I think um, there's a notable concession made by the plaintiffs in both cases, students for fair admission, both in their briefs and in oral argument, when they basically said to the court, what we're really after, Your Honor, is not the total evisceration of any element of an individual applicant's race associated with their application. What we're trying to do is eliminate any judgment about their racial status without more as conferring some benefit or opportunity associated with admission. So said differently, um, the point they were making was in essence, they were trying to get rid of any notion of a check the box, if you will, a term the court actually returned to over 30 times over the course of five hours of oral argument to really understand where they were drawing the line to say, don't make assumptions, don't draw stereotypes simply because a student is a student of color. But if a student um, is compelled to or otherwise chooses to tell their authentic lived history, their life story, their perspective on issues that may be expressly associated with race, what SFFA effectively said repeatedly throughout oral argument is, we're not trying to stop that. Um, but at the end of the day, that concession was really grounded in a small C conservative precedent of 40 or 50 years. They talked about the value and the importance of the dignity of the individual. So how do you tell a applicant, tell us your story, give us um, your authentic lived experience, but by the way, carve out anything expressly associated with race. It's a theory that actually collapses on itself. And we tend to associate issues before the court as liberal and conservative. I will tell you, um, having studied this issue for many years and lived it in, in some ways, um, I think the, what the position they are advocating now is not a conservative position. I think it is a radical position. When you look back at the composition of the court and the justices who have led decisions both um, in favor of institutions and against institutions, depending on facts, but without exception to affirm the potential of the benefits of diversity to justify the limited consideration of race, they are not your raging liberals. They are your Justice Powell, your Chief Justice Rehnquist, your Justice O'Connor, and Justice Kennedy, all conservative to conservative moderate justices on the court. So again, this interview was actually conducted prior to the court releasing their decision, and Art Coleman really anticipated what they were going to do, and he got it right. He described almost exactly what the decision ended up being. They took away the checkbox approach to race-conscious admissions, eliminating the use of racial identification for admissions as one factor among many. But somehow allowed institutions to provide applicants an opportunity to still discuss how race and racial discrimination has affected their lives. That's right. So what the court actually said, and here I'm going to read directly from the decision, quote, Harvard and UNC's admissions programs violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. At the same time, as all parties agree, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected their lives, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. A benefit to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination, or a benefit to a student whose heritage or culture motivated them to assume a leadership role or attain a particular goal 
must be tied to that student's unique ability to contribute to the university. End quote. So here, the court's emphasizing the impact of racism in the lives of applicants <laughs> while also refusing to call it racism or oppression. So where does that leave us? Art Coleman described the court as moving away from earlier cases or precedents as small c conservative toward a more radical position by eliminating race conscious decision making. Right. And in our interview with Dr. Julie Park, she provided some of the disconcerting background and history that extends beyond the court's decision. She describes the way that legislation in states and at the federal level has been proposed or passed and threatens academic freedom and the very foundations of higher education institutions. Let's listen to what she has to say. I know you wrote the book on race on campus. And so um, some of that really is necessary, right? Um, the work that's being done on campuses to try and create more welcoming environments, uh, a sense of belonging for uh, otherwise minoritized and marginalized students and, and that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, the legislation is just extremely concerning, um, you know, the movement and the momentum that it's received. And it's, you know, even when I wrote Race on Campus, which came out in 2018, so, you know, most of it was written in like 2016, 2017, what's going on now, like, it was just inconceivable, like, it was not happening, right? And so we've seen just the most momentum pick up within the last, you know, two or so years, and it's just really frightening how it's just being used and politicized, right? Um, and what's really concerning is that you have, right, the conservative right who's all about like academic freedom. There's no academic freedom at in higher education or it's being, you know, it's being curtailed by all these woke people. But these bills they're putting in place are like the greatest threats to academic freedom. And not only that, it's just basically, these are like anti-truth bills. Like that's what they should be called instead of anti-woke bills. They're called Cause it's like, say, you know, the Florida bill, they were like, okay, we're going to take out the DEI language because then you can't get accredited basically. So then what they do, they do, they're like, you can't teach or use state resources to fund anything related to discussion of systematic racism. Or, you know, right. that the idea that racism or sexism is institutionalized or systematic. And I'm like, in some ways, that's, I don't want to say it's worse, but it's like, that's like, true, right? It's just like, I don't know how to get around it. And so it's just, these are anti-truth bills. And no one's saying you have to like, believe, like, it's like, this is just what we teach. It's like telling someone they can't teach evolution, or they can't teach statistics, or they can't teach, you know, I don't know, marketing or something like that. And this is just saying like, we can't teach what exists and what the research says, or, you know, or we can't use state funding, or we have to live in this climate of fear because you are, you know, actively discouraging this type, or you say this work should be forbidden. And so I think it's, you know, the greatest threat to truth and academic freedom, I think is it's coming from, this type of, you know, legislation and the climate of fear, um, really that, um, right, that that mob, mob is trying to generate.
So Dr. Park is really highlighting a larger context of legislation that's been impacting higher education in addition to affirmative action. Anti-woke or anti-DEI and anti-CRT legislation that she sees as anti-truth bills in many ways impinges upon the academic freedoms of colleges and universities. Yes, and the, the way that relates to the court's decision is a little complicated, but basically Chief Justice Roberts' opinion clarified that the court was not overruling the Bakke precedent, but that, quote, we have required that universities operate their race-based admissions programs in a manner that is sufficiently measurable to permit judicial review under the rubric of strict scrutiny. Respondents have fallen short of satisfying that burden, unquote. And what that means is that Harvard and UNC did not operate their programs in ways that were sufficiently measurable by the court for strict scrutiny to establish a compelling interest. So again, in more simplified terms, basically in rendering this conclusion, the court further degraded the autonomy of academic freedom and historical deference to higher education institutions for them to be able to set their own standards and establish mechanisms of accountability for achieving their own educational and scholarly missions. Right. Elevating the power of the court to determine how compelling interests are defined and assessed. The way that relates to the interview with Dr. Park is that she's describing legislation, anti-DEI, anti-woke, anti-CRT, as infringements on academic freedom of colleges and universities. And the court has signaled an abrupt move in that direction with this decision. So, so the question of academic freedom and the degree to which the court is deferring to institution, that's a topic that we will return to in another podcast episode. But for now, we want to turn to some of the potential solutions for how institutions respond to the court's decision. Let's go back with our interview with Dr. Julie Park and see what she has to say about it. Race-conscious decision-making is no longer possible in admissions. What, what are our alternatives? What, what are we going to do in terms of creating a, an educational environment that fulfills those outcomes that we're, we're, we're seeking? Yeah, I think, you know, institutions are going to potentially may have a wide variety of responses. And so um, most likely a lot of the energy will be focused on um, reevaluating admissions processes practices and considering whether it's pouring more money into recruitment to um, to reach um, historically excluded and underrepresented populations to hopefully beefing up financial aid, right, in terms of, you know, you can admit all of the students of color you want, but if they can't afford to go to your school or if they don't, you know, apply in the first place, it's not going to do a lot of good to, you know, um, sometimes we can kind of see what might be potentially coming by looking at states that have experienced already experienced bans on race conscious admissions. So for instance, in California, they have been test free um, over the recent last when everyone else was switching to test optional, they decided to go test free. And it seems like they're um, pretty happy with that as far as I know. And so that might be something that you might see some systems um, beginning to experiment with more um, or get some more momentum around. I think institutions will be looking at some of their practices that likely undermine diversity in admissions. And it would have been my preference that they had done this earlier. I mean, some of them have done a better job of, of it than others.
So what Dr. Park is saying is really, really key here. It's really important. She's highlighting some ways that selective institutions have already begun addressing the issues in states, especially like California, where race-conscious admissions were eliminated in 1996 through legislation. And for those who want to look further into it, it's Prop 209. Focusing on things like reevaluating admission practices, developing more intensive recruitment strategies, beefing up financial aid, going test optional, or outright eliminating the SAT or ACT achievement test. That's been shown to result in disparate outcomes for student belonging, especially to those in marginalized and racialized groups, possibly eliminating existing policy barriers that undermine diversity and admissions are just some of the strategies that are top of the list. How does all of this fare in the context of the decision rendered by the court? Yeah, great question. In, in my recent discussions with Art Coleman and others after the court ruling, each of these strategies will have different levels of scrutiny based on the extent to which they somehow render a specific benefit to individual students over others, potentially based on race, where, for example, recruitment efforts have not historically been considered to render a potential tangible benefit. Financial aid certainly does and could be scrutinized differently by the court in new cases. And again, Art Coleman highlighted how we haven't done a good job of making clear what it is we're trying to accomplish and why. Let's listen. I think we as a field just have not done an effective job in being sufficiently transparent um, and to communicate effectively what is going on behind closed doors. Because right now you're dealing with a reality where it's still perceived to be this mysterious black box in a system, in a in an environment where we don't trust leaders and we don't trust systems. Like you can see the reverberations of that opaqueness. Uh, well, grades and test scores, aside from the fact that they aren't actually purely objective, um, are merely the markers that begin a conversation among selective institutions, where you are looking at this um, rich mix of factors to not only decide who's likely to succeed when you're looking at the four corners of any individual's application, but what is the class I'm trying to assemble? What is the learning experience I'm trying to create? How do I want people coming together from different walks of life and different backgrounds to lift up, in essence, what Justice Powell recognized 45 years ago, the power and the compelling interest in the robust exchange of ideas. You don't get that when you get all people who look alike, think alike, have lived exactly. the same life coming together. Right, and that blends so nicely with what Dr. Julie Park had to say here as well. Let's listen. And, and so and one of the things that I kind of want to come back to is this notion that you talked about that Harvard could fill its student body over and over again by people with perfect scores on the SATs and other standardized tests and great community service and all of those things. Well, you know, let's let's talk to our viewership about why is that not something they want to do? Why shouldn't they do that? Well, that would certainly capture a group of students who had certain talents and achievements, but it also would leave out a lot of students who also might have 
fantastic talents and achievements and accomplishments and uh, the potential uh, to give back to their communities, it would leave a, a lot of students out. So what they do, you know, I think intentionally is they're trying to craft this class that represents, you know, a very wide range of whether it's talents, achievements, uh, the communities that students come from, the communities that students want to give back to. But even with that, in that, they're interested sort of on a more granular level of what major you might be and for instance, is it worth more for Harvard to put its weight behind, say, an Asian American who wants to become an English major? Like maybe, right? Versus there's a much larger group for various socio-political reasons of students who will apply saying, I want to be a STEM major, right? And so even things like that or region of the country, right, um, can play into to why they may or may not admit a student. And, you know, in the book, I talk about how, you know, I even observe this within my high schools because, because you know, Every year, usually there is like a kid or two who went to Harvard and um, it was never the valedictorian. It was always someone who was like a little more quirky. <laughs> and, I mean, not to say the valedictorians weren't great, but, you know, it was, you know, and they were great students, but great, you're valedictorian and whatnot. But um, actually, there is some interesting research on, you know, arguing that, you know, to be a valedictorian, like it's reflective of you have really great attention to detail. Which is yeah. true because like to edge out everyone, you usually have to like take that secret class or, you know, like you have to be like really on top of right. your grades or whatnot. And that's great. But is that what all of society needs to be? Not necessarily. Right. And so when you're trying to bring together um, a wider variety of students, um, you might look beyond. You want students with very good test scores generally and very good right. grades. But at a certain level, you have so many of those students that there are going to be other things that make students kind of stand out from one another. So what Dr. Park and Art Coleman are saying here is that colleges and universities are trying to do more than accept students with the highest test scores or high school GPA. And these are very important points that were missed or maybe disregarded by the court. Exactly. It seems like the court was focused solely on whether admission decisions were going to the winners of the meritocracy race, quote unquote. And for decades, the questions of meritocracy has heavily emphasized those things. But it's more complicated than that. Right. Way more complicated in a whole variety of different ways. Say more. Well, as our two interviewees point out, higher education institutions, especially highly selective institutions, don't really want, as Julie Park put it, all of the valedictorians. Not only would a class of all valedictorians tend to be from relatively more affluent families and look more racially homogenized. White, you mean? Yeah, it would likely represent students who had a lot of similar personality characteristics, highly organized, detail-oriented, and, and so on, who had substantial family resources to ensure they were supported in their efforts to take music lessons, volunteer, play sports, join the chess club, and so on. So whereas colleges and universities are trying to build a campus community of students from a wide range of different backgrounds in terms of social class, gender, racial, and cultural characteristics, the quote's saying the most important thing is that college admissions are a zero-sum game. Right. They use that term multiple times in their majority opinion. Their emphasis on the zero-sum game prioritizes individual rights of access over the more collective interests emphasized by institutions. 
which help to create a learning environment that will achieve the benefits of diversity documented in countless research studies, but were ignored by the court. Which leads us into our next segment from Art Coleman, uh, in which he really emphasizes the importance of institutional missions and goals and how we approach our interests in developing this diverse student body and making our institutions accessible. Yeah, there's so much to talk about here. I, you know, I heard you say in your response something that's mission driven, and and I've heard you say that in um, multiple settings in the past over the course of the time that I've known you. I've been in different conferences with you, on different panels with you. Um, when we think about mission, mission is driven by the type of institution that you are, um, even your location, and also this public-private divide that we've had that has really guided different institutions in different directions around some of these issues in the past, but this decision seemingly maybe going to be more cross-cutting. Yeah, I continue to go back to, you know, and I think it doesn't take a rocket scientist. You can look at the last 45 years of court opinion. Um, you can actually look at, if you step even out of this collection of cases, where courts tend to turn on questions of education policy and practice, in some form or fashion, a judge is always going to be asking, what's your goal and what are you trying to achieve? And that always implicates, who am I as an institution? What are my values and what am I trying to achieve? And so when I go behind closed doors with clients and we're evaluating policy and practice, I can guarantee within the first five minutes, I'm going to say, talk to me how this particular policy that we might be evaluating aligns with and advances your mission. I want to know that as a kind of fundamental point of integrity and design, because I think there's real power if we remain focused on what we're trying to achieve and craft our policies and practices, even those that may be race conscious, in educational terms um, tied to these core goals. And so just... One last sort of uh, shot in the dark here. Are, are institutions going to start thinking about changing their missions to update them, to make them more uh, effective in addressing large-scale societal disparities and social problems that we really should have in our missions, but maybe aren't explicitly there and may help us in this fight? I will say, I'm obviously not going to sit here in a pretend pretend to wax eloquent about all institutional missions, but I will tell you from my um, experience working with institutions individually and through sort of collections of institutional conversations, national organizations, I actually think the relatively good news is most, in, most missions capture the essence of what we're talking about here. I think the question you're raising in my mind is, um, have we done a sufficient job of articulating concretely what this means at this moment in time. So for some institutions, it might mean let's refresh the mission. But my hunch is for many, it's simply going to be how do we give life and a robust articulation to the mission that has been ours for 20 years or 200 years um, in this context. And that's where I think um, focusing with clarity on the, the statements and the commitments of leaders around the DEI goals is going to be so critical. Thank you. 
This is a really interesting exchange. Given that the court made a very specific mention of the missions of higher education institutions, they said, quote, universities may define their missions as they see fit, unquote. Exactly, which may possibly leave profound latitude for mission-driven actions that advance social justice in affirmative action. Okay, but maybe, possibly? Right, because the very next line in the majority decision, which has often been left out in a lot of quotes of it, goes like this. The Constitution defines ours. Meaning? Meaning? Meaning that the court may declare mission-driven actions that advance social justice and affirmative action unconstitutional at any point in time in the future? Maybe, um, which until now would be considered to be within the academic freedom of institutions to determine their own goals and processes for achieving those goals. And the academic freedom issue here, it's huge, right? When I think about the potential restrictions they're implying, that could be potentially a really problematic issue for higher education institutions across the board. Precisely. But as I hear you talk about the goals, there's some other major outcomes for this decision that I think we need to address in the time we have left. There's some exchanges between you and Art Coleman during your interview with him that really focused on whether we've achieved our diversity goals in the past 20 years. Yeah, let's listen to that exchange with Art Coleman. This segment starts with my question to him about the Grutter decision and Justice O'Connor's timeline. You know, even when you think back to um, Justice O'Connor's decision or or opinion, rather, in in the 2003 case, she set this timeline 25 years into the future. And yeah, that that was the the sentence that carries more weight than one could have, uh, you know, imagined, I think, at the time. It was literally the last sentence of the Grutter opinion after the holding had been resolved, after the ruling had been made under the Equal Protection Clause and under Title VI. Um, she basically, I think, was sort of waxing rhetorically because it had been 25 years since the Bakke decision, right? So literally 25 years from Bakke to Grutter. And now she's saying, and we expect in 25 years the consideration of race won't be necessary. Um, I think by any reasonable estimate, that's um, what lawyers refer to as dicta, sort of non-binding language in a court opinion. Um, but um, the other side is clearly made hay with that one line, notwithstanding the fact that Justice O'Connor, after she got off the court, said, in essence, it was a kind of throwaway, a throwaway line. In the yeah, country. that makes sense. So, but, you know, I mean, what part of what it does, though, is it, is it asks us the question, what kind of progress have we made in the last 20 years? And, um, you know, when I look at the statistics, I'm not sure we've made that much progress, especially in selected institutions. And, and I, I think that's indisputably right. I think without question, we aren't in the sort of moment of nirvana that I think Justice O'Connor envisioned um, in 2003. Um, and that's certainly, well, I think there are pockets where progress has been made, to be sure. Um, and there are gains being made in certain ways in certain institutions. Overall, the gaps are still notable and in some places increasing. And so part of this, let's cast with one magic wand and declare that all is well, you know, after 25 years, seems um, both antithetical to the reality on the ground, but also antithetical to the way that the law historically has operated. Constitutional law doesn't operate like a light switch. Like today, 
you are lawful and somehow magically tomorrow you're not. And this is a point the Solicitor General made very effectively um, before the court. Um, you don't change the rules simply based on a simple question of timing. So the court concluded that race-conscious admissions must have a quote-unquote meaningful endpoint, citing Justice O'Connor's majority opinion in Grutter. But it discarded her timeline and ultimately brought upon an abrupt end to race-conscious admissions. Exactly, but this was never actualized within the 25-year period Justice O'Connor believed would be possible. Mm -hmm. Even though more broadly, there have been some gains, those have been more demonstrable at non-selective institutions, which were not necessarily applying affirmative action policies. Yet... We have a current Supreme Court whose majority opinion seems to believe we live in a post-racial society. Mm. The reality is that enrollment numbers for Black, Brown, and Native students increased in a two-tiered system over the past 45 years after the Bakke decision on affirmative action in 1978. Indeed, it's been an uphill battle since Brown v. Board ruled that public schools must be desegregated in 1954. Right. And there's some really alarming statistics out there that highlight this disparity, including data from the 2023 Hedginger Report and Georgetown Center on Education and Workforce Report. And this shows the gap that exists for Black students in our highest Black-populated cities. One, eight of the 10 flagships with the biggest gaps for Black students have not factored race into their admissions processes. And part of the reason for that is that many flagship campuses, usually public research universities, are non-selective higher education institutions. Right. As selective institutions, Black, Brown, and Native students are more underrepresented in 2020 than they were in the early 2000s. So while enrollment of marginalized students has increased over time, it has done so at a slower pace than broader demographic changes. And the share of marginalized students at selective institutions is about half the share of marginalized students in the most recent 12th grade cohort. In 2021, 48% of Mississippi's high school graduates were Black, but only 8% of first-year students at Ole Miss, the state's flagship university, were Black. Mississippi, as one might guess, passed a law in 2003 that prohibited race-conscious decisions in higher education, so. Yeah, and lastly, whereas the population of Georgia in 2023 was 31.5% Black or African American, the enrollment rates at the University of Georgia was less than 8%. Georgia adopted policies in 1999 that were consistent with the Hopwood decision in Texas, and never changed back when uh, Hopwood was essentially overruled in 2003 by Grutter. So this is becoming a pretty complex conversation, right? Data seems to show this minimal progress or a more or less steady state when it comes to highly selective institutions and ongoing disparities when it comes to states where public institutions were not allowed to use race-conscious decision-making already. It, it was a convoluted decision because it disregards almost everything from past precedents while cherry-picking minor pieces to draw their conclusions. 
if only we could eradicate systemic inequities within a 25-year span. If only. The Supreme Court's recent decision on Harvard and UNC's admissions program contains significant contradictions and implications that require more thorough examination. As we review the potential impacts of this ruling, we have to remain acutely aware of the historical context and the persistent challenges faced by marginalized communities in their pursuit of higher education. Throughout history, the higher education landscape has been marred by exclusionary practices and the perpetuation of systemic barriers that hinder access, that hinder opportunity, and ultimately success for racialized and marginalized groups. Some of the most fundamental features of our educational missions, the discovery of new knowledge and the resolution of social problems vitally depend on critical thinking, effective communication, the most stringent pursuit and expression of truth, and collaboration among those with differing cultural and ideological perspectives, which, by the way, are some of the many benefits of diversity in higher education that have been demonstrated through decades of research, but were ignored or denied by the court. The ruling's close alignment with the longstanding conservative agenda should not come as a surprise, especially given their persistent efforts to shape policy over the course of many years. Figures like Edward Blum and Mark J. Perry have been at the forefront of these efforts. Edward Blum is the white-identified 71-year-old president of the organization ironically called Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA for short. The petitioner in these Supreme Court cases, he's not a student, but a conservative legal strategist, an activist who has attacked affirmative action programs for decades. And Mark J. Perry has single-handedly flooded the Office of Civil Rights with reverse discrimination cases. This is 850 complaints at more than 750 colleges across seven years. This is evidence of the ongoing and coordinated efforts to overturn Bakke and Gruder. And in more recent events, the rise of book bans, legislative attempts to restrict teaching about race and history, Ooh. and escalating attacks from white supremacist groups under the guise of free speech, highlight the challenges facing the preservation of a vibrant marketplace of ideas within academia. And the court used that term multiple times in their majority opinion, marketplace of ideas. Right. And deliberate efforts to undermine diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in higher education reflect a broader trend that threatens the core foundations of intellectual discourse. All true. And the response of higher education more broadly to these challenges is critical. While many institutions have issued mostly performative diversity statements and appointed diversity officers, oftentimes without adequate funding or resources to make meaningful progress, that part, <laughs> meaning that their actions often fall short of real change. And the ongoing focus on rankings, standardized tests, and legacy admissions perpetuates the very inequities that institutions claim to oppose. Exactly. So regardless of their intentions, these institutions often inadvertently reproduce societal inequities and fail to create an environment that truly dismantles barriers to educational access. Right. It's a never-ending vicious cycle. Yeah. Meaning? Meaning that higher education institutions have historically acted on 
and then reproduced societal inequities. Say more. Well, when we consider the historically emphasized admissions criteria, institutions start with high school GPA and standardized test scores. And among selective institutions, they recruit heavily from places like private finishing or preparatory schools or public schools in affluent, predominantly white communities, which already advantage students who have benefited from systemic inequities built into the system. Mm, but wait, there's more. Yeah. <laughs> in some studies, standardized testing... Like the SAT. ...has been shown to most strongly predict social class, meaning that starting with test scores as a first-look assessment for admissions, again, advantages more affluent students. And? And if institutions start the admissions process by recruiting each successive student cohort year by year, reproducing systemic inequities and racial hierarchies, guess what? Higher education institutions both act on and... And reproduce. Societal inequities. Got it. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, the court has eliminated the most effective approach to dismantling racial hierarchies and, in effect, made it even more than likely that higher education institutions must continue to act on pre-existing disparities in the educational system and then reproduce them. Because in an inequitable system, they provide their students with access to the benefits of leadership positions, higher pay, and prestigious occupations and professions, otherwise known as social mobility but not if you come from a family already at the top of that social hierarchy. That is correct. And while we have painted a picture that seems dire, the Supreme Court's decision, while finding fault with Harvard's and UNC's admissions programs, still acknowledged the value of diverse colleges and universities. Silver lining, maybe? Maybe. Paradoxically, this decision opens the door to a form of contextualized analysis within higher education institutions, in part based on principles akin to critical race theory that can be incorporated not only in admissions, but throughout the educational ecosystem. So let's unpack that a little. What is contextual analysis? How does it fit with the court's decision, and what does it have to do with critical race theory? Contextualized assessments in college admissions refer to evaluating an applicant's academic achievements and potential within the context of their high school, family, and neighborhood circumstances, rather than solely relying on standardized test scores and grades. Right, right. So that means that the door left open by the majority opinion provides an opportunity to utilize contextualized assessment in admissions because they said, quote, Nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race has affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise, unquote. So when you take the instructions of the court in line with the emergent practice of contextualized assessments in admissions, consistent with the court's ruling allowing consideration of how race affected an applicant's life, institutions should evaluate an applicant's academic achievements and personal experiences in the context of their socioeconomic background, high school resources, family circumstances, and any challenges they have faced, including racial discrimination or inspiration, to holistically understand their potential contributions to the campus community and academic success. That does sound an awful lot like CRT. The concept of contextualized assessment and admissions, I think, aligns with the principles of critical race theory because 
Ultimately, we're acknowledging the pervasive influence of systemic racial inequities on students' opportunities and on their experiences. Yeah, and by embracing these considerations, institutions have the potential to address the disparities created by systemic racism, promote diversity, and foster a more equitable and inclusive campus environment. Exactly. So in anticipation of the ruling and in the weeks since the court rendered its decision, colleges and universities have more or less been freaking out about the potential impact of this decision, because in some ways, the elimination of race-conscious decisions will require seemingly overwhelming changes to admissions, right? Uh, yes and no. Um, race-conscious decision-making uh, has been eroded for years. Colleges and universities have been using holistic reviews for a long time now, which is many similarities to contextualized assessment. And in reality, we know that the gains in selective institutions from the use of race-conscious admissions have been mostly marginal at best rather than transformative. In the past 20 years, the greatest gains in minoritized student enrollments have been at non-selective institutions. The major labor-intensive efforts required at this point will be in redesigning existing holistic review procedures to incorporate contextualized assessments that are not based on race but have the potential to improve admissions of low-income, contextually challenged students who may also happen to belong to racialized and minoritized groups. But first, these institutions may need to improve their mission statements and or goals and policies to elevate social justice and the eradication of systemic inequities. Yeah. So in thinking about the mission statements of Harvard and the University of North Carolina, go to our heels, in mm-hmm. light of the Supreme Court's decision against race-conscious decision-making, it's pretty evident that both institutions emphasize the importance of leadership and positive societal impact. However, I think that there's room to be able to enhance and to better align with principles of equity, justice, diversity, and inclusion. Right. So for Harvard, the mission statement underscores the aim to educate future leaders for a more just and promising world. To to strengthen its commitment to equity and justice, Harvard could explicitly incorporate language that reflects a dedication to addressing historical and systemic racial inequities, fostering an environment that embraces all identities, and actively promoting anti-racist practices. Yeah. And following that line of thinking, the University of North Carolina's mission emphasizes its role as a research university that serves a diverse community and contributes to the betterment of society. To align more comprehensively with the principles of justice and equity, UNC needs to consider enhancing its mission statement to explicitly state a commitment to combating racial disparities, promoting anti-racism, and actively working towards an equitable campus climate where every member of that community feels valued and supported. So the premise is that by clearly articulating these goals, They can ensure that their actions are consistent with their stated values and actively contribute to dismantling systemic racism, societal inequities, and structural barriers to racial justice and equity. Yeah, but something tells me that might not happen so soon. I mean, changing or even tweaking a mission statement for a major university seems like a really, really challenging task. Yeah, this is true. And You know, Art Coleman, in our interview, suggested that courts tend to turn on questions of educational policy and practice. A judge is always going to be asking, what's your goal and what are you trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. And so when he's consulting with institutions, one of his central questions is going to be, 
how does this policy align with your mission? And, you know, he went on to say that he thinks that most institutional missions actually capture the essence of equity and justice, but then asked the question, have we done a sufficient job of articulating concretely what this means at this moment in time? Mm. So in my view, a statement like the one in UNC's mission, quote, leading change to improve society and to help solve the world's greatest problems, end quote, that raises the possibility that they could articulate that in concrete terms related to racial justice and dismantling societal inequities as a part of their educational mission. Right, right. So a mission statement doesn't necessarily have to contain the words racial justice or systemic inequities. No, not necessarily, no. These conversations are continuing to highlight the complexity of the issue and really a need for thoughtful and strategic responses from institutions, policymakers, and advocates alike. To achieve lasting change, we need to break away from the status quo. Mission-driven initiatives with measurable outcomes should be our guide to our actions. Universities should explicitly be embracing racial justice, anti-racism, and their commitment to addressing racial disparities in all aspects of their operations. If not in their missions, then in the goals reflected in those mission statements. Implementing contextualized assessments for applicants, students, faculty, and staff. I think this takes into consideration the systemic hurdles they've had to overcome and the unique contributions that they're going to bring to campuses. Yeah, that's right. And in July, the Department of Education held a national summit on equal opportunity in higher education, where Catherine Lehman, uh, Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights, said the following, quote, the court did not rule that working to achieve diversity is unlawful, end quote. And so more recently, the Department of Education offered guidance to institutions preparing to reevaluate their existing policies in the wake of the decision. We'll include a link to their guidance in our comments below. One of those strategies emphasized in the Summit on Equal Opportunity was prioritizing the recruitment of students from low-income backgrounds and minoritized and marginalized communities. Here, universities should be offering targeted outreach and recruitment of transfer students. Fostering these kinds of partnerships with local communities and schools is ultimately going to help identify talented students from underrepresented backgrounds and offer them resources and guidance to pursue higher ed, all of which I think fit really nicely with some of the recommendations Dr. Julie Park offered in her interview, too. That's right. And what that means is recruitment efforts should shift focus, directly pursuing students from racialized and minoritized backgrounds rather than you know chasing applicant numbers that won't lead to admissions. Yeah, because the college rankings game, this requires institutions to market themselves to students in ways that simply increase their application numbers without much regard to diversity or inequities, but also that reproduces numbers that define them as quote unquote, highly selective. Exactly. Instead, collaborations with local communities and schools can identify and nurture talent that might otherwise be overlooked. Yeah, and along with that, as colleges try to maintain a commitment to institutional diversity, they should eliminate policies like legacy admissions and early decisions that we know privilege the most advantage. Yeah, that's right. And affirmative action you know, was originally intended as a strategy to help rectify the inequities that existed due to structural racism. 
data seemed to suggest that it was still an ineffective policy to address enrollment gaps and inaccessibility to selective institutions for racialized and minoritized students. The fact remains that the majority of our Black and Brown students aren't even attending these highly selective institutions. That's why I said we have a two-tiered system, because social mobility and the so-called American dream are tied to the ranking of specific selective institutions. The vast majority of Black, Brown, and Native college students attend non-selective institutions already, so they don't even have access to the social mobility afforded at highly selective institutions. Entry into leadership roles and prestigious high-paying careers tend to favor graduates of highly selective institutions, and highly selective institutions tend to reproduce the hierarchies of race and social class already demonstrable in the social structures potential students encounter throughout their lives. Yeah. So then the question becomes, how do we create change? I think first we need to be implementing these contextualized assessments. We also need to be actively recruiting faculty and staff with expertise in anti-oppressive education. And we need to prioritize applicants who demonstrate resilience and leadership against racial discrimination. Partnerships with local communities and targeted outreach efforts can enhance access for underrepresented students. A culturally relevant curriculum and co-curriculum should reflect diverse experiences and should challenge dominant narratives. We got to recognize that genuine access, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism, this demands long-term dedication and resources beyond just the admission sphere. To seize this moment, it's really imperative that we disrupt the status quo, we shatter existing barriers, and we redefine our institutions through mission-driven initiatives with measurable outcomes. This shift calls for explicit incorporation of racial justice, anti-racism, and a commitment to addressing racial inequities and in institutional missions. So by embracing these strategies, higher education can not only transcend race-conscious admissions policies, but also contribute to broader societal transformation by fostering diversity, equity, inclusion, and racial justice. It's through these comprehensive steps that our institutions can realize their potential as true catalysts for positive transformational change. We did it. Episode one. Roger. I made it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we want to thank you for joining us on Thought Leaders Unplugged. Subscribe to our podcast to stay connected for upcoming episodes where we learn from thought leaders, exchange ideas, and co-create an inclusive educational landscape. As we move forward, let's remember that advancing justice and equity on college and university campuses is not just a legal or political matter. It's a collective responsibility that requires continuous effort and unwavering commitment. This podcast is a production of the University of Maryland's Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education. Acknowledgements include the following individuals, Daitu DeSasa, Tamia Webster, and Daniel Moore, and the entire team at the Center for their contributions to the production, review, and editing of this podcast. This is Thought Leaders Unplugged.